drank all night, acted all alright. They told me for years there was no money in podcasting. Well, they were all wrong. This is an ambiguous podcast solutions original podcast. A podcast years in the making. Centered around You're listening to Talking with Tarasha. With your host and founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, Will Tarashuk. Join Will and his guests as they talk about anything and everything under the sun. I say this all the time. Now, without further ado, let's do this. Yes, I know I have gray hair. And welcome everyone back to Talking with Tarashuk Podcast. It's another morning edition of this podcast, which can sometimes be my favorite. Um, this is the podcast where this time I'm going to be talking to someone I generally find interesting. So thanks to my friend Phil Ricobono for introducing me to Kirsten Boster. She is an author of the beautiful game English for football or soccer. Kirsten is a business English trainer who teaches a lot of international companies where people need to think more about intercultural issues and communication skills. Communication being one of my favorite topics to talk about here on a Talking with Tarashuk podcast. She also became a football supporter in 1974 during the World Cup in Germany and has been hooked ever since. Over the years, she has been sharing her knowledge and her fellow English teachers and workshops and webinars. Her new book, The Beautiful Game, English for Football or Soccer, was recently released. We're here to talk all about that, the World Cup, communication skills, and whatever comes up in between. So without further ado, Kirsten, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I truly appreciate it. Well, well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast and thanks for the great introduction. So I really enjoy doing podcasts, I learned. And yes, I think communication is very important. And podcasts are a great way of communicating with more people in a way. They are. It's it's a weird world of networking. Um, I never would have thought I would speak to anyone from Germany, let alone on my podcast. So that is really cool. Uh, I have now spoken to people from Germany, Japan, New Zealand, and obviously the States. So I'm going to get a map on my wall and start making pins for all you I've talked to. So that's really cool. So thank you. You're welcome. All right. So let's let's just start out. You know, who are you? What you do? Just, you know, give me the life story. Run it all down for me. So you already mentioned most of the things. So I grew up in uh, Germany, in the very west of Germany, when we still had two German states. And um, I became very early interested in languages, like in reading, listening, everything. And I picked up English. So I actually, my first foreign language at school was Latin. And everybody goes like, oh my God, that's a dead language. What are you going to do with Latin? But Latin is a great language to teach you how you can teach yourself languages because it's a very solid structure and a lot of European languages are related to it. Then I started with English and my English teachers hated me because when I was at the tender age of 14, my English was already better than theirs, but that's German school education. And very often they take English as a second subject, otherwise they don't get a job, which doesn't really mean they're very good at it, unfortunately. Um, I've got German and Scottish ancestry. So that's the other thing. So I've got like um, a very strong link to Scotland, as you can tell, because the accent is Scottish German and I spent still a lot of time in Glasgow, which is like my second hometown. And um, this is also the picture, the backdrop you see behind, because it's the qualification match for the World Cup or after the World Cup, for the World Cup 2018, I think, in um 
2014 that we start with that between Germany and um, Scotland could be like for the European for the Euro. Sometimes I mix these dates up, and that was actually in the town next to ours, one of the most famous stadiums in Germany, the Dortmund Westfalenstadion. So, and we took that picture. You can see the two country flags. So it was really quite divided who to support. You know, sometimes it's heartbreaking. <laughs> so how how exactly did you learn? English. Now, I'm always curious to ask someone like from Europe, like Germany is a very, you know, it's a very popular language. Um, but like, how did you end up learning English? Is something that's just, that's taught? Are both languages taught in Europe? Is generally? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, English, we start these days at primary school, year four, so elementary school, year four. So, um, so they learn it when they're about like nine. But they learn like rhyming and songs. I, I have English as a school subject, but I think I really learned English through pop music. Mm. I think this is what you do. You want to understand what the lyrics are about. And at that time, we didn't have all those websites like A to Z lyrics or whatever, where you can just put in the text of the lyrics and check what they mean. You had to do this really word by word. And very often they use slang expressions that you couldn't find in a dictionary. So you came up with very interesting interpretations, but you learned the words by heart. You Because you learned the songs by heart, you started building on the accent because I listened to bands from Manchester and um, also to American music and so on. And I think you really learned a very different English from what you were taught at school. Mm. No, definitely. I'm glad you brought up the word slang because that's where that word's going to come up a few times later when we're talking about your book and just the world of football, or as Americans know as soccer, um, and slang. So, like, how how did how do you deal with that? Because slang is something that always changes, right? Slang in America, what was popular in the early 2000s, isn't popular now. Hell, what was popular three years ago in American slang isn't American slang anymore. So, and that's they don't teach slang in textbooks. Like something like slang is taught. In sports, you know, like when I had Phil on, we talked about how his book and baseball is a whole different language around baseball. Same thing with soccer, same thing with football. So as like an English teacher and a scholar, how do you deal with slang? As I teach a lot of like people in international jobs, I actually don't do slang. I don't teach it. I actually tell people, forget it. We had one expression that was one of the books that I had to revise and it was like, give me the lowdown. Can I just ask you, when I tell you, give me the lowdown, what is your understanding of that expression? Yeah, it's just like, give me a gist of what's going on. Yeah. Okay. So you know that, but I asked a lot of my British English teachers here in, who uh, who live here in Germany, who work here in Germany, mm-hmm. and they said, like, I have no idea what that is. So <laughs> give me the update, you know, like give me the big picture. And then we said, okay, you cannot have that in a book. But 80% of my colleagues don't even know what it means because it's obviously written by somebody who uses this as a slang expression from their language background. Great. But it's not understood by the business community. So give me an update or just sum it up for me, wrap it up for me would be fine. Mm -hmm. People understand that. And I think that's the same that you see in in sports, but also in anything that's like, um, that's like youth language. I think youth jargon, if you think about rap music, um, it, so I started listening to rap and hip hop like with Public Enemy, and then you listen to rap or hip hop twenty years later, and go like a lot of things have changed, a lot of expressions have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you teach English through pop music, which I usually encourage a lot because people are so into it, it's really difficult sometimes. You listen to Queen songs, and you know Bohemian Rhapsody, right? 
of course, of course. Okay, and there's this famous line, Scaramouche, Scaramouche, can you do the Fandango? Can you place that cultural reference? Can you nail where that comes from? Uh, I believe the, fan, the Fandango is a type of dance. Exactly. Right, it's like a Spanish dance. But uh-huh. Scaramouche, no idea. You see, Scaramouche was, was the character played by Stuart Granger uh, in uh, the 1960s, mm-hmm. and it was a Cloak and Dagger movie. Okay. So in the 70s, when Queen wrote the song, people still knew the movie. Right. 20 years on, when I was teaching the song in my classroom, I had to explain all these things line by line because my students hadn't got a clue what Freddie Mercury was singing. Mm-hmm. So it's really difficult. And unless people ask specifically about slang or jargon, I rather drop it from the um, agenda unless it's something they really need to learn because they work in a very specific environment. I, th- I think I think that makes sense, right? Because especially with slang, slang changes like you said, it changes all the time. So why teach something that's going to be irrelevant in five years? Yeah. Right? So that makes perfect sense. Just keep keep the basic foundation. Um, and I think I think sports. I haven't played soccer in a long, long time. But I think the, mm-hmm. the, the, the terms are still the exact same. It's, you know, it's a pitch instead of a field. Um, yeah. It's like a, a keeper instead of a goalie. Like like stuff like that, pretty much. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. We're, we're going to get into all that. But you are an English business trainer. And your mm-hmm. motto is helping people do their job better, which to me, it's very self-explanatory. But I did resonate with that because I say that all the time as well. You know, my job as a podcaster, as a producer, as a content creator, it's my job is to make your life easier, right? That's that's my version of exactly what you're saying. My job is to make your life less complicated and for me to get out of your way. Um, but how'd you, how'd you come up with that? Because it's something so simple, but it's so effective. Um, by listening, you really need to, mm-hmm. I think a lot of trainers have their concepts ready and they sell these concepts and then they go in and do the th- same thing. You see that with salespeople. Um, you're not a good salesperson if you can't listen, but a lot of salespeople don't listen because they have their product and they have their spiel right. and that's something that they want to get across. I so say you have to listen to the client. What do they really need? What is their problem? And of course, my clients come in and say, oh, I need English. And I go like, what exactly do you need? I mean, English, there isn't even one English any longer. We talk about English is these days because there's so many different variants. Yeah. So what exactly do you need? Oh, you don't understand your colleagues from Scotland. Okay. You're afraid of giving a presentation in English. Okay. We can work on this and we can help you to do that better. So you need to listen and you need to ask the right questions and then do a very, very good needs analysis with them, with them so they can develop a plan and have very, very st- specific steps that they're going to take in order to improve or to be able to do their job in English. Different people expect different things from a trainer, and I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. You got to go to a specific kind of trainer. But like, I also like how you said um, there's different variants of English, which I think, yeah, it's a thousand percent true. Um, American English is different from UK English or British English. Not, not, it's not even just the O-U-R, but also just in terms of different words have different meanings. Uh, like we call it a parking lot. You guys, well, they call it a car park, right? So how do you how do you deal with that on an international scale? Because you don't only teach English, and I gotta be like, okay, which English, right? Am I teaching UK English? Am I teaching Australian English? Am I teaching you know like a, a Asian English? It's it's all it's all different. So how do you how do you tackle all that? Um. The first thing that I ask is actually where people learned their English. So we have a lot of um, students who were like um, exchange students at school. 
and I went to the US. So if they say parking lot, that's perfectly okay. Yeah. Sometimes I forget this. I say, well, you better say car park because I use car park. But sometimes they get confused. I say, no, no, it's okay to say parking lot or workers' council, even though we say car, car park and works council. So you have to be very well aware, at least of the two dominant registers, that's British and American English. Um, and sometimes you just have to look things up and say, well, if you use a specific Australian word you learned during your work and travel, you can use this in Australia, but even your American or British counterparts may not understand you. So you might you may better use a word that's more understandable. So the concept that we use a lot is intelligibility. They say, okay, it's perfectly okay to use different words. It's even okay to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody says he's not good in English, it's not grammatically correct, but it's perfectly intelligible. So you have to sort of like know a wide range of registers. And this is where the international community helps because um, I've been to the US a couple of times but I don't really have an active knowledge of some of the differences with American English. I know some, like the words for clothes or food or something or parking lot, but with some others, I really have to ask my colleagues like, so is that actually an expression? Is that what you say in the States? Um, And if my students spend some time in the States, I say, okay, go for the American English register. That's better for you. People will not be able to deal with British words. Yeah. It also completely depends on the coast, East coast and West coast talks completely different then you got to deal with accents right it's like I, i'm originally from massachusetts so people from new york will go it happened the other day right like it was it was the name don d-a-w-n um and the way i was saying it they thought my guest was a don a d-o-n so even even here in new york and it's we're i've been here for six years now so i pretty much got rid of my boston accent but even just a don and dawn with the W is different. So even like, is does that kind of stuff exist in other languages too? Like we have there and there, T-H-E-I-R and T-H-E-R-E. Does that exist in German? Does that exist in Italian? Does that exist in Swedish? Or is it really just an English thing? Um, I think register exists in every language where you have a variety of speakers. So mm. when you have Swedish, people in the south of Sweden, like uh, where you um, speak very slowly and it's strongly inflected by Danish. If you go to the north, you wonder if people speak at all. <laughs> and then you go to Stockholm and they speak pretty fast. They have this kind of sing song in their language. And that's not so easy for me to understand. So I speak Swedish fairly well, but it's really difficult to understand people in some regions. And German, is, um, German has a strong north-south divide. So the group of southern accents in particular, I actually think they're dialects. They sound like own languages. They even have different sentence structures. When people speak dialect, it's really, really difficult to understand them, like Swabian or Bavarian. And even when they try to speak standard German, their accent is quite thick. So very often you wonder, is it this word? Is it that word? Mm. Um, and there, we don't have so many words that sound the same as spelled differently, but um, we have t- three verbs, which is liegen, legen, and flügen. So it's E, E, U. And this is very difficult for learners to tell the difference because they sound so similar. So you have those words in German as well, but thankfully not as many as in English. And we write things the way we pronounce them. So there's not this difference between the way you write and the way you speak. Mm-hmm. So that helps a lot with German. This is why, for example, French is a nightmare for me because you never pronounce anything the way you, you write it. So mm-hmm. English isn't so easy on that either. I think I think Japanese is the most like it. It's written as it's pronounced. What's pronounced as it's written. 
I think I could be wrong on that, but um, Japanese is also an interesting language. It's a lot of like three syllables, but that's that's all I know about language. Um, I'm still learning English, but you are an English business trainer, which I think is just a fascinating job title because here in the states, it's like you know we have business trainers, we have business coaches, we have a specialization in like if someone speaks um, Chinese in this country. They can make a lot of money. I think it's the same thing. It's like, you know, if you speak really good English in Europe or in Asia, you're going to make a lot of money. It's just interesting seeing the title English business trainer. Because um, in the States, it's just like, what do you need that for? <laughs> right? But in Europe, it's huge. So how how common is a job title like this? I guess do a lot of businesses kind of hire on English trainers, especially with an in- international company? Um. I think the point is where a lot of people go away from this classical English trainer and say then business English trainer, business communication trainer for English or whatever is that the pay is lousy. If you just go for language training, there are a lot of like backpack trainers um, and basically you don't really make a lot of money until you start putting business into it. Mm -hmm. So business communication skills, business English, English for business, whatever. And I think that's, um, so it's, it's, actually getting more common to use different names to move away from the classical low-paid um, English trainer or English teacher. And maybe that's the reason why. So I think business English trainer isn't that uncommon, but you see more business communication skills and everything. And they even drop the English because they say we're focusing on the communication. We are less focusing on the language. Uh, so, um, so I think that's also quite interesting because, in my yeah. opinion, you cannot separate this. Right. Yeah, you use language to communicate, so right. you cannot teach language without communication, vice versa. But you also use you're tweaking the language. It's funny you use you're like all right, we'll just use we'll change the verbiage up a little bit. All of a sudden, hey, my salary's doubled. I'm doing the exact same job. This is how you call it. Yeah. So that's exactly. that's funny. That's a little mental gymnastics there. All right. So clearly. For this kind of a job, you need strong communication skills. And I say the same thing as a podcaster. As a podcast host, you need communication skills. Luckily, with podcasting, it's as easy as you just talk to people. You talk to people every day. Those skills transfer over. So I guess in your opinion, as a as a as a trainer in this kind of stuff, what is the key to strong communication skills? Listening and reflection. Um, I think a lot of people do not really reflect about what they say and what the impact on the listener is. And then they don't really reflect enough about what they hear. So what the other people might want to get across and might say to them. And I think that's um, possibly more important. Really, I have people at an A1 level, which is a pretty low level. So it's like false beginners. But they are such great communicators because they really listen and they really know how they get their agenda across and how to make themselves understood that if they are at the negotiation table, you do not want to be on the other side. Mm -hmm. So... And you have some people who got a great language skill, so they, they can understand Shakespeare and they can write fantastic essays. But you read the essay, you go like, can't you shorten the sentences? This is not legible. I can't understand what you're writing about because my brain cannot process a sentence that's half a page long. Yeah. Uh, so, and and I, th- I think that's really the reflection. You're talking to someone, you're writing for someone. Who are you writing to? Who are you talking to? What do they expect? What do they need to know? And I think this is basically what I usually start with. I love I love you said the reflection. Reflection is huge because like I had um Alan Schoenberg on front of the show. He's a chief communications officer, um, and like different for different corp- corporate America companies. And he is his big thing was listening. 
you know, people need to listen more. And I completely agree. Listening is kind of a lost art nowadays. Another thing podcasting really helps me with makes me a way better listener. Um, but you mentioned writing, which I didn't even think of writing. You know, I think of communication. I think verbal, like, you know, we're, we're talking and making verbal things to fix the problems. So are there different communication skills and things to look out for in terms of writing in written word, like in an email, like a postcard or whatever, you know, memos, business memos. Like if a CEO sends out a memo to the whole company, you know, that those kind of communication skills are way different if that same guy's giving a keynote. So how do you differentiate between like verbal communication and written communication? The key difference is, of course, uh, immediacy and difference. When you make a mistake and you realize what you said wasn't quite what you wanted to say and you're speaking to somebody immediately, you can correct yourself. Yeah. Say, oh, sorry, I got that wrong. Or ah, I see you didn't understand something. You can correct this. You don't have the chance with an email. Um, the email is there. And if you send it out, you better really check that this is what you want to say in the in the best tone um, so that the other person understands you correctly because once you send out the email, it's done. And if the person gets something wrong and they think, oh, you wrote this and that, you might start an email war without wanting to. I think with memos, it's even worse because you're communicating to a whole group of people. You might communicate a company strategy or something. So a lot more refining and revising and reflection needs to go into writing. And it is more difficult to anticipate what the reader might expect mm -hmm. because you don't know exactly like with a memo, you don't know who is reading the memo. With the email, well, you write this to somebody, but you don't know in what situation do they read it. Will they have enough time to read it? Do they just read the first two lines, which a lot of people do? Or will they read the full email? Huh? So, um, and I think that's also something you have to be actually more careful. You really need to compose an email and not just write it. So you have to think about what goes in it and where do you put the information and so on. No, definitely. Like I, with work emails, typically I try I try to keep them as short and direct and to the point as possible. Um, also, I really hate like confirmation emails. Not, not like an automated confirmation email from a calendar or what have you. I mean, someone who literally writes back like, thanks, and an exclamation point, and that's the entire email. I, no, don't send me those. Don't, do not send me those. It just, it clogs up, clogs up my inbox. In return, I also don't send those either. Like if someone sends me like, hey, here's an update to this, got it, you know, I got it. I don't need to answer back, you know, thank you or heard or copy. It's just everyone's busy at work. At work. And the last thing, people hate clogged in email, email box. I can't tell you any email invoices I've seen, inbox I've seen where it's like 100 unread emails. It's like I don't, I don't need to be spreading that. Um, even if it is kind of like, you know, people would say it's like unprofessional. I think it's more professional, more professional. Less emails, the better. Hmm. The funny thing is that, um, especially with tools like Slack and Teams and everything, where people mm -hmm. have like company chat, we have fewer emails. Mm -hmm. And that also means that I, as an external person, get fewer emails because, because people learned that they don't need to write so many emails. Mm -hmm. So where I used to have like 50 to 100 emails a day in the past, today I get 5 to 10, and I'm very relieved. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so fewer emails I don't is the need best. that. Yeah, don't need it. Yeah. Just Give me this just direct, basic information. Here is what I need. Here's what I need it by. Thank you. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. No, yeah. no, like, hey, let's all get together after work. No, no, no. Just put that in a Slack channel. Put that in a Slack channel. Yeah. I don't mind. But then you have Go ahead. Yeah. 
But then you have people who really need the niceties where you have to start with, oh, I hope you're having a good day. I yeah. hope your holiday was okay. Thank you very much. Because, you know, if you are not do this, they might not answer your email and give you the information you need. So again, you need to know what do the people expect. So yeah. if I write an email to all, I just say Friday 3 p.m. is fine end of discussion and I don't need you to write back you can just send me the invite or with some other people say oh this would be great and thank you so much and everything and then you would also expect them to write back yeah I'm so happy we can make it and everything and I'm not the biggest fan of this either because I go like oh do I really have to do this but I know it's important to keep a good relationship and to oh, work sure. with the people effectively so I just invest this one minute more to write this pleasantry in the beginning or at the end so that's it yeah the the niceties and like the politeness and the hey hope you had a great weekend if it's a monday morning that's that's good for like the beginning of the conversation like the the initial email right Mm -hmm. and then it's everything in the middle is just i don't even go hey what's their name i just kind of just you know continue the conversation and i always end my email with you know thanks and my name of course and at the end you can just then you can do the niceties at the end it's just in the middle when business is going to be conducted Short, sweet, to the point. Nice season, the top and the bottom. I think it makes. I think yeah. it makes total sense. Yeah. Email etiquette. Then with something like Slack, uh, what do you what do you think of these like Slack, Microsoft Teams, Discord servers, like stuff stuff like this? Uh, I I used Slack at my first job out of college, and Slack wasn't. It was misused. I'm going to use the word misused, and I'm going I'm going to blame Slack on this one, um, because a lot of stuff that was going on a Slack channel was external by external i mean not like necessarily work related it was a lot of just kind of back and forth like you know there's a happy hour after this or we should sending memes and gifts and a bunch of this stuff whereas my microsoft teams is very direct to the point work and i think slack i think if you're gonna make one of those accounts not accounts like like one of those programs like a slack cut out all the external stuff. Don't have any like maybe a few emojis because emojis are fun. But like no, no memes, no gifts, no extra stuff. This is a work chat room. Keep it work related because Slack got very distracting for me very quickly. So what's your take on all these chat boxes and these chat rooms and how that can really affect a day to day business operation for positive and negative? I think Slack had a problem from the beginning because they called it Slack. If you call it ah, Slack, then point. you think like Slackers, right? Yeah, I slackers. mean, on, they were yeah. asking for it, right? They were asking for it. So then, of course, people used it for all kinds of like, oh, it's just another chat channel like WhatsApp or something like this. So I think you need rules then. So I work with a couple of Slack spaces with my clients, and they have very good rules. So we really discuss business. And sometimes in a like informal email, people might ask, oh, I'm coming to Germany. Do you have some tips or whatever? But sometimes you really have to make it clear, like, sorry, I can send you an email about this, but that's not for Slack. Because if it's on a channel, if it's not like a private message function, which you have, then others might see this and they might wonder what we are discussing. So, but most of my clients have a very good discipline. I would also say with Teams, it's different because it's Microsoft and it just replaced a lot of Outlook emails, which Mm -hmm. is good. But I think also on Teams, people tend to be more professional. But in Germany, a lot of companies use the video conferencing, but they don't really use the the collaborative functions like the channels and working together and everything. So I use them in some classes as a learning management system because Teams is fantastic for that. And then my students go, ah, okay, I can just ask this question here and then you'll see it. And I say, yeah, you don't need to send me emails. Just put it in that channel and I'll get it. I get a notification and then I can upload the file that you want and everybody has it 
Uh, so it's it's actually very good, but you need to te- uh, to teach people on this, and the Germans are a bit slow to catch up on those. Mm. You know, they still believe in emails. I mean, emails old school, right? I mean, to an extent, emails not going away anytime soon, which is great. I love emails. I think emails a great way to communicate. I'm very organized in my emails. Um, what kind of clients do you typically work with? Is or is it? Do you like? Is it more with? companies as a whole, like an organizational hire route, or is more of like an individual, like a C-suite executive will work with you one-on-one? What are your clients like? Um, it depends. I do workshops for, for mixed groups, or like for the Chamber of Commerce. Of, um, I do stuff at university. But the clients, um, sometimes it's really like group teaching. So for example, people from the accounting or the HR department, when it comes to the, um, the higher levels, then it's very often one-on-one. And the situation is quite often that um, a company's been taken over by a British, American, whatever company, so suddenly they all need to speak speak English. So I go, uh, Kirsten, I say, yeah, I got some time, we can do something. And then you realize it's not really the English, it's the communication, because they don't understand, for example, when the British ask in a meeting, how do you feel about it? What the British mean is, of course, what do you think? What's your opinion? But James, uh, I go like, why are you are you asking me about my feelings? This is business. Yeah. So they don't get it. So this is where you have to teach different communication styles. So you're really working as an interpreter of those kind of expressions in a way. So that's um so it's it's a very mixed thing. But I like working with small groups and I do extensive courses like weekly courses, mostly online and workshops I try to do face to face, but with COVID nineteen that wasn't always possible. So we also developed good half day workshops for online formats. So that was actually quite interesting. What's like one of the most common miscommunications that happen that you see with international companies? Um, like where, where, where they direct, need, where they need the most communication? help? Yeah. Sorry? Like, like where, where they need the most help, like the biggest, I guess, sources of mis, mis, miscommunication. Our direct, indirect communication, because a lot of my students tend to be very direct and they don't realize how this is seen by their international counterparts. Mm. Um, also first language interference so that they use German words and think they mean the same in English and go like, no, you just said something completely different. <laughs> um, I think that's the that's the worst part. They get better with translation tools, but then you need to tell them that they have to edit what the translation program has just written. They can't just trust the translation program. Mm-hmm. So um, some understand German very well, others understand German not so well. And so they might actually send off an email that is accidentally quite contradictory to what they want to write. But I think that's basically it. So it's um, communication styles and first language interference. So when you, when you say it's, like it's you work with international companies, is that, do you work on like internal communication? So it's like one company, so like in Biggest Podcast Solutions had a New York and Tokyo office, how they can communicate better with each other. Or is it between two different companies, like say APS in US and then Nike over in Germany? Like, do you work more company to company or internally or externally? Um, I think a lot of this is internally in terms of like head office and subsidiaries. So um, because that's the situation with the acquisition and mergers that we have. But very often I do a lot of stuff, for example, in the insurance business, like customer servers and sales. Also for manufacturing companies that need to sell their products to international clients. And then, of course, it's external. 
So then you are more in the intercultural field because you have to think about, okay, so you've got the Asian markets, plural. What do you need to know about the Asian market? What do you need to understand about Indonesia or Japan? It's not the same. And will your product work and why will it work and so on? So I think it's both actually. And it's it's very interesting and you'll learn a lot from your students. So the knowledge I gathered over the last 25 years in my job is just amazing. From, from accounting to sales, there's so much insight that you get and insight into business, but you go, I, I wouldn't buy shares. I wouldn't buy stocks from this company. Not really. So, and that's quite interesting too. Well, you have a really interesting job and I'm glad I got to pick your brain on it because honestly, it sounds like a lot of fun. I feel like I would really enjoy having this job is talking to people be like, Hey, here's where you screwed up. <laughs> you moron. Um, <laughs> but that'd be just me. Now you also wrote a book. So you took the, uh, your, your passion in your career it took it towards your passion in real life. Like I said in your intro, you're a big fan of football or as Americans know it as soccer. I'm probably going to go back and forth because I don't know which one I should be using right now, but that's okay. I'm going to use both. So the book, um, why write the book and who's the target audience for the book? Um, the book has been in the making for the last nine years, to be honest. Um, ever since I gave a workshop to my teaching colleagues at an international conference about how to use football as a vehicle of teaching English in their classroom. And we had a lot of trainers who came in and were like, I have no idea about football or soccer. I got no idea, but my students are crazy about it. So I need to learn how to teach it. Like, oh, okay, so we had some ideas, we developed more ideas, and I live, as you can see in the background, I live in an area that's football crazy. We have so many teams in the Bundesliga, which is like the top league in Germany, mm-hmm. um, and um, my whole family is football crazy, so all of that is there. And then I started using that in English, and one of the biggest moments of pride was actually I was teaching a group of accountants in 2014, the day after the semi-final versus Brazil, where Germany just beat Brazil, they hammered them 7-1. And I just bought this big tabloid that we have in Germany because they had full full page pictures of the goals and no comment. So I brought that into the classroom and said, okay, today, past simple gentlemen, retell me the entire match using the pictures. It was one of the best lessons we ever had. And they really understood the past simple because they talk about what did I do yesterday? What happened in the match or what was happening in the match if they were going for past progressive? And this is actually what you can do if people are passionate about something and they really want to talk about something. And this is the the key motivation factor here where we say there's so many people out there who want to talk about football and soccer professionals. So people at an academy who want to be a player, who want to play in Europe and they need really good English skills. Um, you know, a lot of them come from Japan or, or African countries and so on. And then of course the people like the managers and the staff that works with these people because you can't always rely on interpreter. But then you have journalists, you have bloggers, you have football fans like me, uh, you have, you have, English teachers in a general English class would say the World Cup's coming up. Yep. We need material because our students want to discuss that. And it's a great way to teach them English about countries and nationalities and rules and everything. And I think this is the beauty of it, that you really have um, so many different people being interested in this. And a lot of them would love to discuss, be able to discuss this in English. 
but it gets us back into slang because you have to be very careful with the language that you don't pick up the five buzzwords that are being used at the moment because you know maybe in two years from now nobody says them any longer and then you can rewrite the whole book and you can't have that either yeah so and like you know different different parts of the game like take a slide tackle right that could be called one thing in german soccer and could be another thing in um italy soccer or somewhere in africa soccer um so yeah that's very interesting is who would benefit more who benefits the most from your book would it be players would it be fans or would it be students um, I think the first half is probably more for players, but mm. interestingly enough, a lot of the people I know used to play football. Yeah, or were dreaming of becoming football stars and played in a team when they were younger. So they also like all this kind of like rules. And of course, if you discuss the match, people love discussing tactics and strategies. And they say, yeah, so he did a lousy job in the defense because, and then you need the same vocabulary as the players or the managers who explain those tactics and strategies too each other and want you to implement them. I think this is also one of the reasons why Ted Lasso is such a great hit mm. because everybody can relate to it. Mm -hmm. So it is about football and have all the strategies, but this is what everybody discusses. You have five people and you get 20 opinions. Yeah? So because everybody sees the match in a different way. And yep. I think people are not so much into the match. They're really into discussing the match. Yeah, mm. because it shows themselves as experts and everything and they're very frustrated that they're not able to do that in a foreign language so they cannot talk to the supporters of the other team at a national match because the Italian isn't existing to a certain extent football German or football Italian is English because when they adapted football they adapted a lot of the, the words so pressing is pressing in German tackling is tackling in German now, um, so we use a lot of words that are very similar or come from English um, so I think some things are understood but a lot of things especially when it comes to tactics and strategies are really quite difficult because they're very very detailed and complicated and it's all the different moves with the ball and everything and not only that, like when you're, on, when you're on the field, like particularly if you're playing this, playing someone the same country, body language is incredibly important. Like you know, if you're running downfield and you're trying to get, you're open for a, a, like a long pass, you don't necessarily want to scream like, "Hey, hey, I'm open, I'm open." You want to give them some sort of body language, and that might not be needed in the World Cup either because you do have an advantage of, "Hey, you speak a different language than your opponent." So do you do you go into stuff like that in courses too, like body language? Or is it more just verbal communication? I think there are um, three aspects to this. So first of all, um, it is very, very noisy on a pitch. Mm. Um, one of my advisors who actually checked the technical vocabulary and contributed some of the activities, she said the thing when uh, during COVID was, he actually realized how noisy it is usually on the pitch. So whatever the manager says on the side, the players aren't able to hear that because the fans are roaring and everything. So, and even for the players, it is very difficult to understand each other, even if they speak the same language. So you need very short commands, what we call the on-pitch commands, like keeper or behind or pass or whatever. So one word commands that are immediately understood. That's the one thing, um, because you cannot really rely on long explanations. So this is, again, direct communication, low context is very important. Then the second thing is body language is for your own team. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you really develop a system of signs, hand signs, whatever, that hopefully the other team does not understand, so that you can organize the players on the pitch very well. And body language is also important as a signal to the other player. You ever wondered why central defenders are always like six foot tall? Because they're scary. Mm-hmm. If you have a player like uh, Niklas Süle, who is one of the German central defenders, you just go like, I don't want to mess with you. And this is why they're cast for that role. They're not fast, but they can really put down, they're like a rugby player. They just put down their foot and they're really difficult to pass by. And that makes a good central defender, for example, or a good goalie. And um, and yeah, so I think that's also very important. And then you have to remember with the European leagues, so many players play in different leagues. So we have German players in the UK, in France, in Italy, in Spain, everywhere. That means everybody understands a bit of the language. So if you catch something the Italians are saying, there's possibly some guy who's actually able to say, oh, this is what they're planning on. So this is something that changed dramatically over the last 20, 30 years when players really started playing outside their own national leagues. And this is also what I think helped American um, soccer players and the American national team because the players came over, learned, and then brought back the skills to the U.S., something you didn't have 30 years ago. And this is what helped the men's team, the men's soccer team, a lot. Mm-hmm. I also like that you included media training um, in the book. Um, with the World Cup coming up, you know, dealing with your own media is hard. I know athletes in the States, they do go through media training. It's like media training is a real thing. You got to learn what to say and not to say to the media. You got to learn to keep your cool. Um, is that kind of what you're teaching as well in your book, like how to deal with your own country's media as well as international media? Because, yeah, there's there's translators, but that'll only get you so far, right? You got you to gotta talk to press from the globe with the World Cup. So do you go, do you go into all that in your book? Kind of lay out lay how, lay how that works out for me. What we do is um, we look at press conferences, for example. So there's one extra time where the, the manager gives a press conference. So what kind of questions? Why do they ask the questions? What questions would you ask? How would you answer the question? And then there's another opportunity where we talk about team motivation, where we use two excerpts from a real-life press conference where I was so impressed by the manager. So they, they lost the first leg of the, of the international game quite disastrously and everyone thought that's them finished and he gave a press conference where he just said my team did did a great job today in a few more words and then they won the second league and they made it to the final and he more or less gave the same speech and was like oh my god this is amazing yeah? because it's just like you protect your team you put yourself in front of the team. This is what you get money for. And you would never criticize uh, players. So we talk about these strategies, how to deal with the press, what not to do. But um, it's only one book. I mean, I could write five books about the topic. So, but we do cover it. And um, what we also do is in the teacher's guide, we give more material. We say, so this is a good example. If you want to deal with the press, this is a very good example of what you should say at a press conference, how you can handle a press conference, how you can handle interviews or media. Um, I think it changed a lot because they're all now on Instagram and everything. So, and most clubs now do provide proper media training, which I think is very important. Um, so you don't get this kind of interviews like 20 years ago where they all said the same. It was all stupid. So I think it, it changed a lot and for the better. But yes, we do cover that in the book. Awesome. And where can I find the book? Sorry? Where can I where, where can I buy the book? 
Well, the book is available at the moment via the website, Sports English Media, um, and that's uh, for the moment. It's also going to be out on Amazon soon and also going to be available as an ebook. And we are working at the moment with a couple of distributors to shorten like the delivery ways. So we're going to have a distributor in Japan and in England pretty soon. And um, but even from the US, it takes about a week to get to Germany, so that's not that long. Awesome. Sometimes Amazon takes longer if they don't have to book on stock or something. So, um, so that's pretty okay. Awesome. All right. Well, let's wrap up with some World Cup talk. Let's have some fun with the World Cup. Um, World Cup is coming uh, this year, November. Um, yeah. By the time it's released, it'll be in a few weeks. So the World Cup is always exciting. Every four years, started in 1930, and the first country was. Uruguay, which if I did not, I would not have guessed that my first country to be Uruguay for the World Cup. So what what do you know of the history of the World Cup? Do you know how it got started, why it got started, anything like that? Well, it got started basically because the FIFA really wanted to have a tournament between Britain and South America, between Europe and South America, because that's what we are talking about. And behind Argentina and Brazil, Uruguay has always been like number three. So um, they made it like to the semifinals in 2006 and 2000, 2006, but definitely 2010 and so on. So they've always been quite good. They hosted the World Cup twice, I think 1930, 1938. So that was basically FIFA's idea. And it started more as a sportive tournament before it turned into the biggest money-making machine in sports ever. I think they make more money than the Olympics, honestly. So I think it's like uh, FIFA World Cup, Men's World Cup, Olympics, and then it's um, the Super Bowl. So that's like the three biggest cash cows when you think about sporting events. And um, of course, during World War II, they couldn't play, but and then they widened. And that was the good thing FIFA did. They widened uh, the number of teams. So Asian qualifiers, North American qualifiers, and so on, because we, we had Mexico, but I think like US or Canada are not really great soccer nations, so it took a while. And to be honest, or to be fair to FIFA, FIFA also uses money that they make from the Men's World Cup, for example, to finance the Women's World Cup, mm-hmm. which is not money-making yet. It's getting more attention, it's getting bigger, it's getting more advertising, and so on, but it's not really a cash cow. I think they break even, but that's more or less it at the moment. So, But it's still, this is why they wanted to go for a two-year mode, and everyone's like, We've got leagues to play. We got other competitions to play. So you can't have a World Cup every two years. We got African Cup of Nations. We got the Euros. We got the CONCAF. So that would just be very disruptive. So I think they dropped the idea. But um, the next World Cup in like North America, you know, that's going to be Mexico, Canada, and US. It's just going to be bigger. I think you're going to have 48 teams then. Wow. And that will be really challenging in terms of logistics. So one group will just play Mexico. One group will just play in Canada. You have different hubs in the U.S. and so on. So that's going to be um, really interesting how they manage this. Yeah. Are they are they playing all over the U.S. Uh, for the World Cup? Is it, it was it L.A. In Atlanta? I think. I think the I think they have like hubs in the West and in the East. So it's a bit like, you know, when you have like the, the, the two leagues and is it football when they, oh, yeah. football, basketball, AFC, it's like East NFC. and West Coast. Yep, and yep, then East and West Coast. Yep, yeah, yep. exactly. So I think they're going to do something very similar that they have like the hubs, but um, it's just going to be a lot more matches and a lot more teams participating, which is good for smaller teams like Scotland. Um, but I think it's, 
who's going to watch all this? Who's going to take, what, four, five, six weeks out to spend day and night watching the World Cup? So I'm not really sure if that's such a good idea. Bigger, bolder, larger isn't always the, the best way forward. You, you can't expand too far and completely outreach, which is kind of a weird thing to say. But, you know, do you, you don't need to watch all of it, right? I mean, the diehard soccer fans will try and watch all of it, but it's going to be impossible because you kind of got to pick and choose your teams. It kind of got to come appointment television again. And I'm, it, that's crazy how it's the most successful sporting event ever because it only does happen every four years. Like the Olympics, well, Summer Olympics, four years, winter, two years, four years, so it's two and two and two. But I like these, that's interesting. Do you think the Olympics or the World Cup has a bigger cultural impact on the world? Because I would honestly say it probably is the World Cup because the world is obsessed with soccer, football. It's way more competitive uh, the Olympics is like a, a mishmash of a lot of other games that people kind of understand and kind of play. Everyone can understand the basic fundamentals of soccer. You got a ball, you kick it in the net. At the end of the game, you see whoever has the most wins. It's relatable. Anyone can play it. I definitely think the World Cup has a bigger social impact, cultural impact on the entire globe than the Olympics ever could. Um, I would agree. I think it's basically because it's not only the World Cup. Um, you have to see that so many billion people around the world watch for example the premier league yeah the premier league is big in china and japan and all over and the premier league is the league where most players want to play so they come from japan and they want to play in the big leagues so if you think about uh like live streaming you get lots of bundesliga matches you get lots of league one like the french especially the spanish league and of course the premier league so you have football all the year round whereas the olympics also cover sports that are really for a very small niche group of people yeah now, who's i'm sorry how much do you understand archery the germans only <laughs> watch archery at the olympics and only because the germans are good at it yeah. finally yeah. So I think that's one thing. And of course, um, talking about social impact, what is quite important is, of course, it's a team sport. And the Olympics have not really been used as a vehicle for social change or cultural change and impact the way football has. The whole racism debate, standing up against racism, uh, bending the knee, um, the whole idea about we need to discuss homophobia and men's football and so on, all of this is far more outspoken now in football or soccer than it will ever be in the Olympics. Uh, so, you know, and and think that's a huge debate because there you can reach a different set of people. You reach a lot of the people who would normally make racist commands, comments and then suddenly uh, they realize this is not acceptable any longer. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of debate in group in team sports, especially the teams are international. Um, the teams are diverse; they're culturally and ethnically diverse. If you look at the German team of the 30 players, they they have more or less nominated for the World Cup. About 10 to 12 players have a non-German background, so they come from the, the, their great grandparents come from Poland, or they come from um, Sierra Leone, or whatever. But they all play for the German team. So that's a great integration factor. And you don't really have that with the Olympics, where it's clearly nation versus nation. Mm -hmm. yeah? But here we have these mixed teams, and they have a cultural impact. 
and a social impact and even a political impact. And you see that with a whole Qatar discussion. You've never had that kind of discussion about the host nation that you have now in Qatar. Yeah? And I think that's quite interesting too, that, that people are developing a bigger awareness of the change football can bring. Yeah, well, I mean, the Middle East is, in general, is trying to kind of enter that world stage in terms of sport. Like Saudi Arabia also wants to have a lot of sporting events like wrestling. WWE hosts a lot of events there. They have a lot of things over there. So they are trying to kind of make that cultural impact. But yeah, Qatar was a was a weird, not I don't want to say weird, it's an interesting choice. Not what I expected to host the Olympics. But um, how how does a country get selected to host the Olympics? I think the Olympics is pretty much just like, hey, Whoever pays the most of the Olympic Committee <laughs> pretty much can host. Um, That's why I got Russia and China. But how do they how do they pick a host for the World Cup? Um, the host for the World Cup is, of course, uh, voted for by the members of the FIFA uh, congregation. But every member has one vote. So all the small um, representatives of the national football associations, like Costa Rica or whatever. They have to say Trinidad and Tobago. They have the same vote as Germany or England. So basically, if you want your country to win, then you have to make sure that you get all the countries that represent or all the representatives that represent the small countries on your side. And if you're more an outsider, they go, "Yeah, okay, we side with you." Um, to what extent? Uh, to what extent money and corruption is involved? Well, I leave that to the investigators who are still working on it, um, like, you know, investigating what Zeb Blatter did in his term of office and so on. But I think, yes, um, a lot of that involves also like paying money to the small or to the, to some countries, not even the small countries and hope that they will vote for you. Um, Of course, the FIFA always said that they want to widen football. So they gave it to South Africa and said, maybe with a, with a World Cup, we can promote some change in South Africa. But a World Cup is very, very expensive. So it was quite crippling for South Africa to pay for all the infrastructure of the World Cup, mm-hmm. um, which was in the end quite a setback. But it put South Africa and Africa on the map and suddenly we reported about the country and the region in a different way. So Qatar has the money, but I think the press is the press and the sponsors are very, very cautious about not wanting to be to be connected with a country where um the working conditions and human yeah. rights and everything are, let's say, very debatable. Yeah. And well, that's quite interesting. It's what we had with the uh, Olympic Games in China as well. And and did Russia really, at that point. Did you get a lot of Coca-Cola advertising the Olympic Games in Beijing last um, year? You know, I didn't watch the Olympics that crazy. Olympics are just, you know, they're games to me. You know, to call the Olympic Games, whereas World Cup is a sport. Another reason why I think the World Cup is better. But um, I I didn't notice. The one thing I do remember is, like, they're doing these ski slope things next to, like, a power plant. And it just looked really weird. But I don't, like, advertisements, yeah, I'm sure there's Coca-Cola everywhere. Everyone loves Coca-Cola. It's delicious. The best. Um, yeah. But they keep very they kept very quiet about Beijing, contrary to Tokyo. Yeah. And they keep very quiet about Qatar. So they say like we're gonna fulfill our sponsorship duties, but please don't force us to advertise outside the World Cup. 
Interesting. And that is something we haven't really seen. This is this is like the first time. But that is also changed because FIFA now has to think about where they're going to give the World Cup to because the sponsors won't be happy if that kind of backlash happens again. They're like, yeah, we'll take your so, money. We're not going to put our name on it. <laughs> that kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, well, you also, you also mentioned like what, what, the, what, what the hosting did to South Africa. Same thing with Brazil. You know, they built these giant stadiums, cost billions of dollars, I'm assuming, and then they leave and they haven't been used since. Mm-hmm. So how, how can you avoid that? Because soccer is humongous in Brazil. It's one of the biggest games in the world, especially in Brazil. And they should host a World Cup because it means a lot to their people as well as the sport. But how can you do that without crippling the country in debt and making these stadiums that just don't do anything and have no purpose and can kind of ruin economies? It's really a, it's a tough situation. I'm glad I'm not in. But what, what can be done about something like that? I think the first thing is actually that um, FIFA should possibly invest if the country isn't that rich. If they mm-hmm. say we want you to host, um, then they might have to to do some investment. And we need to talk about sustainability. Um, the crazy thing is that it's the same with the Olympics. They usually often ask you to build more and stadiums. And you go like, what happens to the existing ones? Yeah. yeah. So like in Russia, you had already a lot of stadiums and Russia did a good job to that extent. They said, we're going to enlarge them. We're going to modernize them. We're going to reuse them. And we have big teams like St. Petersburg and Moscow that are actually going to play there. So that makes sense. Um, with Brazil, you don't have that, obviously. So you have stadiums that aren't built for um, big Brazilian teams because you don't have so many teams outside the big cities. And this is, for example, when Germany hosted the World Cup in 2006, and we're going to host the European Championships again. We just use the stadiums that are already there. Okay, yeah. you need to modernize, you need to update, maybe yeah. enlarge something. But basically, it's not going to cost that much, and it's going to be more sustainable. Huh? So that means you really have... But then you, you limit yourself to always going back to the same rich countries that already have an excellent infrastructure, and that is then, of course, not supporting countries who could do with a certain kind of investment in infrastructure. But I think in Brazil, it was also a lot of corruption again, same in Russia. And um, I think you just wasted a lot of money on things. And you need to build and design stadiums in a different way. They'll cost less money and they can be used as a multifunctional arena after all, after all or something like this. What London did with the Olympic Stadium, for example, they did a very good job on that. Yeah. It's a lot of work, takes a lot of time and effort, and honestly, to something like this, FIFA, whoever's in charge of all the money, you might, need, you might need to take a little hit. And honestly, I think that's not necessarily the end of the world. Um, I think businesses need to learn that it's not all about profit all the time. Profit's important. Profit's actually most important. It's not all that matters. Um, so I think we can leave that there. Now, 2006 World Cup, Germany, that was against Germany and Italy, Right. Yeah. In Germany. So I got to ask. Semi-final. I got to mm-hmm. I got to ask. Zinedine Zidane with the headbutt. What was what was ah. he thinking? Um, I really want to know what Totti said to him. I think Totti insulted him and he mm. provoked that reaction because he knew Zidane would do that. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that was say, that was his yeah. last game, right? Then he retired mm-hmm. and that was his last chance. I I remember cuz I was a kid. I was in 6th grade. My first World Cup that I can actually that I actually paid attention to, that shot of him walking to the locker room with the trophy like the World Cup trophy right there. And he just walked right by it and I was like, "Man, that is a tragedy." 
But yeah, he. I, I agree with you. I want to know exactly what that guy said to him. I am also Italian, so I was very happy when Italy won the game. But you don't just headbutt someone for no reason like that. This is a wild reaction. Yeah. Lasting moments, and in the end, uh, who is the most um, memorized and most appreciated French football player ever? Zinedine Zidane. Mm. So everybody forgave him for the headbutt. Yeah, so, um, and in the end, like, uh, he had one of the best careers in football ever, and people forgave him for that. I think other people would have not been forgiven. He was. And, um, of course, Germany was heartbroken because in the semifinal, Germany said, we're going to go for a penalty shootout, and Italians went, like, the last thing we're going to do is go for a penalty shootout. We need to score an extra time, and they did. They did, yeah. So it isn't over until the referee... Whistles. Yeah, the, the, rules, the, whistle, rules, yeah. the rules of soccer are weird. Like the additional time, the fact that the clock goes up, it's 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 a, it's a weird sport, but I love it. I love it because it's so different, and the World Cup is definitely entertaining, and I'll, I'll be watching. There's a few bars here in Hoboken that are very specific for World Cup. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah. yeah. The fans the, are the best. Great soccer bars fans are the football. best. Yeah, yeah, soccer fans are the absolute best. Think about the World Cup. You know, it brings fans of different together because in America – it is growing. Soccer is a very, very fast-growing sport in the States. And it's also a big reason of that because of gambling. Um, so is, is gambling on, on football big yeah. in Europe? It's definitely yeah. big. It's probably bigger. Yeah. We have these online betting, and you have betting shops all over Germany now. Um, so like the bookies in Britain. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right, Kirsten. That's all, that's all I really got for you. Thank you very much for being a guest. But before we go, the final question always goes to the guest. So is there any question you want to ask me, now is the time. Who do you want the World Cup in Qatar to win? Who do you want to win the World who Cup who in I Qatar? Who do I want to win? Oh, man, mm-hmm. that's a great question. I don't even know who's qualified. Um, <laughs> I don't even know who does qualify. Um, you know, I would I would love to see – I don't think the U.S. has ever won. So I would like to see the U.S. win. Um, just because I feel like half the country would be amazing. This is crazy. The other half would be like, wait, the World Cup happens? So it'd be interesting just to see what would happen if the U.S. actually won. Because, you know, U.S. is on, like a, a dominant world force in everything but soccer, which I think is just hilarious. So I'd like, I'd like to see the U.S. win, selfishly. But yeah. Yeah, well, they have to make up for this because the women have already won the World Cup four times. That too. So the men haven't even been to the semifinal. So yeah, let, let's keep fingers crossed that they make it really at least to the semifinal, to the final. That would be fantastic for the U.S. boys. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That that would be a lot of fun. But ladies and gentlemen, my name is Will Tashik. A big thank you to my guest, Kirsten Boster. Uh Kirsten, anything you want to say and anything you want to plug, your book, your company, your services, anything you want to say, the floor is yours. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And um, so if you like the podcast, then go and visit me on LinkedIn or go to Sports English Media to get more about the book. So there are a number of videos, which also the way I also talk about my work on uh, LinkedIn. So and you can get in touch there. And if you get a book, right, drop me a line there and tell me what you liked about it or what you think we need to improve for the second edition. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Will, for, for doing this. I really enjoyed that. It was a great hour of talking about very interesting topics that are very close to my heart. Thank you. Not a problem, Kirsten. It was a pleasure. Uh, I'm very thankful for Phil to p- putting us together. I'm going to make sure I text him after this and thank him as well because you were a lot of fun. You know, soccer and football is not a world I know a lot about, um, but it's great to learn. And I love talking communication and podcasting. So that was a lot of fun. So thank you again for that. But ladies and gentlemen, that is the end 
of our podcast. My name is Will Tarashuk. T is in Thomas, A-R-A-S-H-U-K. If you like this podcast, you want to hear more. These podcasts can be found anywhere and everywhere podcasts can be found. That's iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, CastBox, anywhere else podcasts can be found. All the video can be found on YouTube, clips on TikTok, Instagram Reels, and everywhere else. I do a lot of work for this podcast. I thank you very much for your support. If you want to be a guest just like Kirsten or any of the other guests I have in this podcast, reach out to me at will at APSpodcast.com. That's A-P-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com to learn more. If I go, ooh, that's interesting, congratulations. You're on the show. I look forward to seeing you there. Until then, y'all take care.